But I went to Pace University. It's a big college town, but then it was called Pace College. They had a payment plan where you had to pay half the tuition for the semester, you know, when you register. And then you had two payments after that. So I had the first half and I paid that. I had no idea how I would pay, you know, the other two payments. That's the way it works. You just have to step up and pay and do it. So I did it. And now here I am, you know, many decades later. Welcome to the Immigrant Experience in America, an immigrant human library where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants in the United States and around the world. Listen in as we add another story to our immigrant human library. Hello friends, and thank you for joining us on another episode of the Immigrant Experience in America, where we amplify and humanize the experiences of immigrants living in the United States and around the world. Today, we have another thrilling story to add to our Immigrant Human Library. It is that of Dr. Glenn Leman. Welcome to the show, sir. Thank you for having me. Wonderful to have you here on the show. I was happy when you reached out, and we're looking forward to hearing more about your immigrant story. So if you don't mind telling us a bit about your background, as much as you'd like to share, we will be posting your uh, professional bio in the show notes for others to read. Okay. I was born in the parish of St. Anne, otherwise known as the Garden Parish. I grew up in in the town called basically Claremont, uh, a suburb of Claremont, I guess, called Coltart Grove, which is about a mile from Claremont. But I like to tell people that my grandmother's house was at the one mile post and eight miles down the road was where Bob Marley grew up. Really? How neat. Yes. He grew up in, in nine miles and in the same road. So I'm sure he passed my house. I just didn't know him at the time. So that's my claim to fame. So for the first 10 years or so, I lived with my grandmother and my great grandmother's house. My great grandmother checked out when I was around eight, I think. And then my, my grandmother, she hung in there a few more decades. So on my mother's side, she can trace her father's folks came from Ireland. I think the story goes that an ancestor came, would come to, on a ship to Arakabessa in St. Mary. And it was a, a supply ship. And then on one journey, he just decided to stay. And then he got married and hung in there and so on. So that's her father's side. And her mother's side, though, they go back, I'm not sure, but they're probably from, and my great-grandmother, she could tell stories about slavery days and so on, from her mother's story. So that's that. My grandfather, actually, is Chinese. He came from China in the early 1900s, and he actually came as an indentured servant, believe it or not. They they actually had indentured servants well into the uh, 20th century. And he worked on a plantation in in St. Mary. And uh, when his contract was up, he opened a shop and then he was doing so well. He sent for his son in China, who was my father, his son and his wife. And then they had a, you know, they were there for a while. And my father eventually went back to China and he left my father with, you know, the business. And my father's first wife died. He, he had a family. And then later on, I came along. Unfortunately, my father inherited two shops from his father, but he became a compulsive gambler. And it was shortly, it wasn't long after he had lost both shops. So he really didn't have anything. That's why I kind of ended up in Vermont, uh, living with my grandmother. And then I only saw him occasionally. And when you say shop, are you referring to grocery stores? Like yeah, grocery shops. Typical, 
typical what we call a Chinese shop in Jamaica. You know, yes, you know, the shop that sold everything. So he had two of those and then gambled it away. And I think he made several attempts to get back on his feet. I think at one point he had a shop and money, and then he lost that again. And so the next time I engaged with them, you know, my mother had gone away to Kingston, and I heard they were together. And then I would go visit um, on some vacations, and, you know. And then he had a shop, he had a restaurant in Kingston, so it looked great. And my mother said, "You can come and stay with us. We're we got a business now." So I went back home and I finished up my school year and packed up and I went to Kingston. But guess what? When I went back, there was no shop. Yeah, they had moved and everything. They were they were just you know basically struggling. And I think, uh, but luckily for me, I um, I won a free place to high school in in Kingston Kingston College KC. But every year we moved, and even one time uh, I remember um, we got evicted. Well, in those days they didn't really evict you. What they did, they had a company that would come to your house and take your furniture for payment of rent. So that's what happened to us. So we kept moving every year. Never made any friends like in high school, you know. So I remember now my my early childhood was a country boy hanging out with the goats and the chickens and the pigs and so on. All of a sudden I'm in a big city, very exciting. But we kept moving every year. So I never really made any neighbor friends and so on. And then to top it off, when I was 15, so he died, and then we were homeless. So my mother, her mother, and I stayed around in Kingston to kind uh, finish up my high school. So it was a you know a little traumatic. And how old was he back then? I, I oh no, when he was considerably older than my mother, because remember he had had a family already and a whole other set, and they were all adults already. He was in his fifties, so late mid fifties. And so now you're with mom and at Kingston College and trying right. to figure things out. Yeah, well, I was alone because my mom went back to live with her mother and uh, and and two, my two sisters at the time. He had two more kids. <laughs> they had two more children. So that's the way it was. How did you finish school then when your mom went back to live with her mom? My mother had a friend who had a boarding house and, you know, that, um, you know, there were some other students there and other people would rent a room or whatever. And I lived there. And um, my problem was I, I couldn't always pay the rent. So I, <laughs> I had to sneak out because I didn't want her to see me. But, you know, sometimes she'd complain that people aren't paying their rent. And I knew she was talking about people like me. But she never kicked us, kicked me out. So I got to give her credit. She was very kind. She was very, um, you know, she did a good service. And she even had an, adopted some kid that was discarded and she took him in and raised him. So people were like that. In the day, people were very, very generous like that. I've heard a lot of stories in Jamaica of people taking it, raising other oh, yeah. kids, yeah. other yeah, people's was- children. Believe it or not, this was a white boy. He's, I don't know, um, he, he was a young kid, and he had some growth problems, but he lived there. I remember his name was Dickie, and uh, he was like a just a fun kid, but he didn't have any any relatives. He didn't know any, any didn't have any background to speak of. And so how did you get from that point? I'm sure you finished Kingston College. Yeah, at one point, I actually considered quitting you know i wanted to I, I it was so difficult i thought about leaving at that point though you know my um my brothers from my father's first marriage they helped me a little bit you know they had a small business so they they gave me a job but i felt so much pressure that i felt i should get a real job you know where i could work all week 
but I hung in there. I was actually offered a job, but I didn't take it. So I hung in there. And then after that, I went to work mining when it was Jamaica Mine, the bauxite company. Yeah, so I lived with my grandmother for a year. I did that. But then I had an uncle who had migrated to the States. And he told me, well, you know, you can come here and uh, there's opportunity. So I was uh, in communication with my uncle and he told me, well, got a student visa. And uh, next thing you know, I'm, I'm hanging out in Brooklyn. <laughs> Nice. So you got a student visa. That's awesome. Yeah. yeah. So I took a course in computer programming, but I couldn't get a job. This uh, was when? Back in the 19... 19- this is back in... I came in 1969. So, you know, early, early... Uh, yeah, in the 69, yeah, 69 year. So I decided to go to college, you know, and that was always my ambition anyway. My, my idea was to work and go to college, but they always say you could, you know, work at night, go to college in the day, or, or vice versa. So that was my plan. So that's what I did. I, I enrolled. I found the cheapest college, signed up, and they took me. So, And the funny thing was, the, this college, I went to Pace University. It's a big college town, but then it was called Pace College. They had a payment plan where you had to pay half the tuition for the semester at, you know, when you register, and then you had two payments after that. So I had the first half. And I paid that. I had no idea how I would pay, you know, the other two payments. That's the way it works. You just have to step out on faith and, and and do it. So I did it. And now here I am, you know, many decades later. That's the immigrant mentality, right? right. You do what you need to, to um, kind of but, survive. Yeah, but I, was, I was determined to survive, as you say. I remember my first job. My first job was lifting, lo- loading uh, a delivery truck. In the morning, in the mornings, and um, I remember there were two Jamaicans that signed up, myself and another guy, and there were three Americans. And the second day, all the Americans quit, and <laughs> they said the work was too hard. The, what, the Jamaicans hung in there, so uh, there's a lesson right there, right? <laughs> we were on a mission. So you got to Brooklyn as a student on a student visa because there was an uncle who provided support and started working. And how did life develop from there? Well, so one day there was a you know, group of Caribbean students. There was one guy from, I think, Martinique, and he was always well-dressed and he, you know everybody has had some kind of work. And so he's told us that he was on scholarship, but he had to keep his grades up so he couldn't work. So I said, well, how do you get this scholarship? He said, well, just go to the register and tell them you're interested. So I went over there and I said, hey, you know, I hear there's some scholarships, you know, and then they could get one. I signed up. The next thing I know, they, they gave me half a tuition. So wow. it was like a magic. Yeah. At pace, right? Yeah. So that was pretty cool. Uh, and then what I did, I worked in a hospital in the kitchen. I mopped floors and washed the dishes. And, uh, that was actually a pretty good paying job. I, I did that every every evening. I would dash out. My last class, I would dash out and catch the subway to Brooklyn and then go work in this hospital. And then um, on Saturdays and Sundays, I'd work a whole day. And so that's kind of how I... And how old it. were you then? Maybe around 20, 19, 20, 20. Yeah, yeah 19, 20. Yeah, back in. So it worked out. But then halfway through that, I went home to Jamaica for a weekend. And uh, remember, I used to work at the Bauxite Company? Yes. So just a weekend, and I saw that my a friend of mine who also worked there, 
And he said, oh, you know, they have this scholarship. I said, oh. He said, you should apply. I said, what? Well, I'm not going to be here. I'm going back on Sunday. He said, well, just write something. I'll take it in for you. So I wrote my thing, an application. And luckily, I had my college papers, you know, my acceptance and all that. So I sent that in with him. And next thing you know, they offered me a thing to pay the other half of my tuition. So Why? You were in school in another country? Yeah, they did. Yeah, well, it was an American company, so they didn't care where you went. Oh, um, wow. They, okay. Yeah. So had I gone to like Dewey, it, that would have paid everything, board and room and everything. But in America, you know, it was just paid half my tuition. Because I think my friend actually got one of those and he went on and studied medicine and they paid the whole thing for five years. That's amazing. So, yeah, that was a good deal for him. Yeah. And for me too, I was really very, very happy. What was it like back then as a young person with no cell phones, no internet, no social media? How did you guys network? What we call network or share information. It seems that your friends were sharing information. Like, you know, ex give us a sense for what that was like for you when you were younger. There was telephone. Of course, we didn't have cell phones. So you could borrow, you know, borrow phones. Usually most homes had a phone. And uh, so, of course, you have to catch the people when they're there. In the case of how I got the job, another friend called me and told me that his cousin was going for this job. And that's how I ended up going. Um, but yeah, pretty much you leave a message, call and leave a message. That was it. And pay phone. You know, it was a dime to make a call in those days. Funny story is one day, you know, money was always tight. I, I was trying to make a call and the, you know, you put your money in and all of a sudden a flood of coins came out. Yeah, every once in a while, things will break your way, right? <laughs> Do you remember how much money you actually got when that just kind of opened up? It wasn't that much, maybe about five bucks, but, you know, it was like, that was like a hundred bucks <laughs> the way yes. they the it, right? Yeah, it's just found money, you know. How did things develop? I think you mentioned JCPenney. So you did computer science. You got a way to got school paid for and all of that. No, I actually studied biology because I was, I was hoping to go to medical school and, um, I actually packed up and was going back to Jamaica and then, you know, change, change of plans. I did get a job, though, at JCPenney. I remember trying to get a job it was tough because, um, well, I started taking the subway to interview. And, you know, that became expensive real fast. So I said, well, forget that. I'm going to write letters. So I think I wrote like 100 letters to different companies. I only got one response, and that was JCPenney said, well, you know, we have this training program. We're going to train people to be computer programmers come in for an interview and they took me. And I think what did it for me was I only taken two computer courses, but what impressed them was that I was in the debate team in college. I, even though I, you know, I didn't think we did that great, but she said, oh, that counts for a lot. And I said, okay, <laughs> if you say so. And so they were impressed with that. And uh, next thing you know, I was in a training program and after about a year and a, a couple of years there, they had an opportunity in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. I said, well, that's warmer weather. You know, by then I was married and I had a daughter. It seemed like an opportunity for us, you know. Uh, we could buy a house, you know, and, and it, the cost of living was cheaper and so on. So, so we took it and we moved. They moved us. They sent the movers and they packed up everything, including our garbage. <laughs> they packed everything they saw. I said, hey, that, that's garbage. So before we get into the, the Atlanta piece, I'm wondering if you can share with us, like as a young person growing up in Jamaica, 
You're from mixed heritage, of course, and Jamaica is considered uh, largely a Black uh, or people from African descent in the country. Like, what was it like for you growing up? I I know that it sounds like your dad made some unfortunate decisions and and so forth. What was it like going to KC back then? Yeah, Yeah, uh, I always lived very near, very close to the school. So it became a, a central part of my life. In other words, you know, on every weekend, I would go over there and watch some game cricket or whatever because you know I was just like I said I didn't have a lot of friends so I would go go over there and they had a chapel so I went to church there you know we had but you know we went we had church every day <laughs> yes very briefly Jamaica yeah. church so, so I you know I was into the religious thing you know even as a boy I, I remember in the country hey, we'd go to church they had meetings at night you know and we had missionaries too I think at one point we had a missionary some people came from America and they would have a nighttime meetings, you know, in, in the area. And, and I'd go to that and they had Sunday school. So we took part in that too. So we moved a lot. So I always felt that pressure, you know, I always felt that, you know, we were, it was unstable and I never knew, you know, when, well, so before I even started, that's when we had that eviction thing. So, you know, that, wow. that, that just, you know, was back, back in my mind. Oh my God, yeah, this could happen again, you know. And then uh, my father would come home and, you know, he wouldn't have any money. And, you know, it was, we had some uncertain times. Let's put it that way. And for a young teenager, just trying to focus on school, I can imagine. Yeah. And, you know, and I I could tell that, you know, when he died, you know, that my, my whole concentration fell off. You know, I could, it was, I think I had a cold for two years. I got sick. Yeah. My, my whole immune system took off and. I I I was struggled. My my nose is always running. It was I was sick for a couple of years. Yeah. It was really very, very quite a trauma. Yeah. I hope you had a somewhat or of a semblance of the Jamaican culture and enjoying the food and yeah. So, so you know, forth, when, I look like... back, when I look back on it now, I'm amazed at the things that that we were able. I was able to do. I mean, like we, I went to football games. I remember going to um, Carib Theater, Regal, to watch movies. Uh, we were, I think the Drifters came one year, and I, I ended up going with a friend. I don't know where I got the money. But somehow, something always worked out. While I was going through that, I felt tension. But now that I look back at it, I'm amazed that, oh, I, I did that? I can't believe it. I mean, I went to the National Stadium. I went to, you know, all of these things. It was, it was incredible. I soaked up the experience. Um, I was even in a play at school. I didn't do anything. I think I just stood there like a guard or something. But, you know, and then as a reward, they gave the whole cast tickets to see, you know, the, the pantomime at the Ward Theater. You know, so I took part in things like that. And um, That's good. Yeah, so I did. I did it. You know, I went through it, but I didn't really luxuriate in it. You know, I didn't have the, it was, it was, it was, it was under some constraint. I get it. That kind of emotional on instability of like what was going on at home. You did get exposed to like some very good oh, yeah, activities yeah. in Kingston. That's good. Sure. Yeah. Definitely took in a lot of the. Okay. Yeah. And Kingston College has a good reputation. I know as a, one of the yeah. great, uh, the good boys so, school yeah. in Jamaica. Right. Good, yeah. We got some good training there. We had some good teachers. Also, I had some bad teachers, but, you know, we, we, I did well. So, you know, I made it to A-level, so I did sixth form. And okay. I think I got a very good preparation. So when I came to college in the, in the United States, it was actually easy. 
relatively speaking, because you know, in having done like A levels, you know, most things were, were somewhat e a lot easier. I mean, I'd never gotten a hundred in anything, and I took a math test and I gave me a hundred. I couldn't believe that. Whoa, this is in Jamaica that they they graded. If you got sixty, that was like exceptional. Yes, yeah, right. They were yeah. very. They were very. I mean, they they knew how to give you a complex. Yeah, that British system is something. Yeah, else that system you. is tough. Man. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, I feel the same way too, and I yeah. think a lot of people I've spoken to are like, you I know, you. Yeah. we're flying over here. Yeah, and I noticed that. I've noticed over the years that kids. I think you, if you have a kid in America, you send him to Jamaica for the first ten years, and then bring them back. And it's all downhill for them because um, it, it's a completely different and the training is so much better. And, you know, even my primary school, I look back on that now. I'm still friends with some of my um, colleagues from primary school. You know, we, I can name several of them. Uh, I have lunch every time I go to Jamaica with, a, with the young man, uh, uh, the old man now, <laughs> that I used to sit beside in, you know, in primary school. That's so good, right? Yeah, so we still have those. But we got a good preparation i remember in preparing for the common entrance right remember in those days that i think before independence there's only a couple thousand kids could go to high school uh and then after independence they kind of opened up a little so it was it was very hard you know you, you realize that if you didn't go to high school then you're relegated to just a couple more years of primary school but and in, in that our particular school uh the year before you took the exam they had you stay back every day, one hour after school, and you were in a class. There's a classroom of everyone, and they would give you, you write an essay, and you did some math. And you, you just did that over and over. So when you got to the, the, the exam, you know, we, I think a lot of kids passed. So it was really, we really were on a, uh, a very good, good school for that. I can relate to that. Doing the extra, putting the extra time after school Work, yeah. to get prepared for the CXC. Just go to that motion and that extra. Well, you know, I, I think um, Malcolm Gladwell has this saying that if you want to be good at something, you need to put in 10,000 hours. Right. And if so if you do that for basketball, hey, you're probably good. But if you're not tall, then it probably doesn't help you that much. But if you put 10,000 into doing your work, your schoolwork, you'll probably learn something. I visit my teachers, my high school teachers. Every time I go back home, I'm still in touch with my English lit teacher, um, my French teacher, my history teacher, and others. And I have so much respect for them because I realize just how much they poured into us. Right. And without prejudice, they poured into all of us children just so much, you know. And I understand that they're hiring, you know, the U.S. and other places are hiring teachers from Jamaica because they're they're highly sought after. I really do think yeah, those teachers' yeah. college do very well in preparing these people. Yeah, yeah. The system there has its its strong points. Yeah. Well, definitely, you have to do the work. I think you know, in in America, they tend to gloss things over, and you know, and I realize that that doesn't really work for some people. At some point, you really need to develop in order to survive it to come. And now it's a global marketplace. So, you know, exactly, yeah, yeah, you have to be able to compete. So but on to that transition to Atlanta, tell, tell us a little bit more about what it was like, you know, transitioning with your child and family to Atlanta and trying to find a place and what life was like back then in Atlanta, yeah. in Georgia. Right. So this is the, the 70s. I think. 
I was the only person, uh, if I recall, that went that left New York to go there from you know from that department. And everybody said we can't leave Broadway. <laughs> I said, well, I'm go there that often. And so, but everybody said, you sure you want to go to Atlanta? You know, they, you know, there's Ku Klux Klan. There's people drive around with shotguns in their pickup trucks. You know, <laughs> and they're painting this. So I, I, I said, well, yeah, you may have a point. But I did read, uh, I think in that year, National Geographic had a story about uh, Maynard Jackson, who was the first black mayor of Atlanta. And he was, a, I think he was on the cover. So I read that and I said, well, I mean, it can't be that bad. They have a black mayor, you know what I mean? So what? So I, I said, let's roll the dice. And it's warmer and, you know, a lot better than living in New York. And so we made a plunge. And um, so first thing, though, looking for a house, right? In that time, the Ku Klux Klan used to have an annual convocation in Stone Mountain in the park. I mean, they just meet for like a weekend over there. And, and I said, hey, send me the other side of town, <laughs> in the west side. I, said, I don't want to be near that, those guys. So um, I ended up you know, getting a house in Marietta. And it turns out that it was a lot... You know, I didn't see a lot of activity in terms of, of the, you know, Ku Klux Klan or anything. But an unfortunate incident occurred, I think, the first few months. I was going to work early in the morning because I, I, I worked at, I started working at 7. So I left in the dark in the winter months. My tire blew up about a few miles down the road. And when I looked at it, I realized that it wasn't like a flat. The, it, the rim had fallen apart, the, the, the side of the tire. So I said, okay, fine. I changed it and I went to work. And at the end of the day, I'm coming back. I look at my car in, in the parking lot and there's some writing on the back of the car. You know, like somebody painted or whatever, you know, defamed, defaced the car. So I said, oh, well, somebody in the garage probably, you know, just went through and mischief, you know. But when I got home, I noticed the same markings on my mailbox and in front of my yard, my driveway. My goodness, what is this? And the, the letters were DDD. That, that's really what they painted. So I, I didn't know what it was. By, back then, I didn't even take a picture. I didn't have, you know, cell phone wasn't, in, you know, wasn't around back in those days. So I just said, well, hmm, I have no idea what it is. So I cleaned up as best I could. But then a couple of weeks later, a friend came to visit and said, and I, I was explaining to him, and he's a much older guy, and he's an American and living in the South and everything. And he said, you know, that might have been the KKK, but they didn't want to put KKK. They put DDD. And I said, oh, my God, you're kidding? And immediately after he said that, I put my house on the market. And I said, we're moving. So I moved closer to the, I moved into the city of Atlanta, you know, closer. So from then on, I, I always lived in the black neighborhoods. I said, well, I'm not taking any chances. You know, I, I'm not, I don't want to be a martyr or brave or whatever. But yes. within a few years, though, everything had changed. You know, people started moving in. Jamaicans started coming. I tell people that when I first came to Atlanta, you could not get a patty if your life depended on it because there just wasn't, you know, the restaurants weren't there. But yes. all right, uh, Jamaicans came in droves and, you know, there are restaurants everywhere. And before you know it, you go in a, in a, in a supermarket and you hear somebody talking patois. You go, oh, <laughs> where are you from? <laughs> <laughs> it was like that, you know, it was like crazy, but it's an amazing. So I've seen a lot of changes in my in my 40 years in Atlanta. And then you mentioned then after J.C. Penny moving on with Coke, that's a, a nice story as well. Right. So I, I was able, I was very fortunate. A colleague had gotten a job 
I'd left JCPenney and gotten a job at Coca-Cola. And he, yeah, I just happened to see him at lunch. So in other words, as you say, back in the day, we didn't have self, we weren't texting or anything. I just happened to run into a guy, um, you know, just at one lunchtime. And he said, oh, you know, they're hiring in my, in my, my department, you know. Uh, why don't you apply? And so I did, and they took me and they, they accepted my application. Coke was forming a wine division. They were going into the wine business. Most people don't know that they did that because they only had it for like, I think, four years. And then they decided it wasn't a good fit for them. So they sold it. And then all of a sudden, all these people uh, were, you know, without jobs. So they said, okay, you guys can have the first pick uh, on any any jobs in the corporate. You, you get a first selection. So they gave us preference, so to speak. So I got a job in the market research area. And it turned out, you know, I was there over 20 years uh, uh, really very interesting. I got to travel. There was a lot of traveling involved. And I think I mentioned that I'd been to South Africa once, you know, after Coke had divested from during the apartheid era. Uh, Mandela came out, was released from prison. He became president and all of a sudden it was business on again. So Coke sent a team to evaluate getting back into the business and getting the customers up to uh, standard. And so I was uh, part of a team that did that. And we did surveys. We visited a lot of customers. And it was a great experience. I really had a great time. I went to Soweto, you know, the township. I went to a gold mine. I, I started taking pictures, and they almost took away my camera. It was, it was something else. But, uh, but that was quite an experience. And uh, what, I, what I noticed was that the, um, the whites spoke very highly of Mandela. You know, they were so relieved that, you know, there was no bloodshed after he he became he came out of prison. You know, he, he handled that in a, in a very graceful, uh, graceful man. So that was great. Join us again next time for part two of this episode. Friends, as always, please subscribe, comment, and share if you enjoyed this interview. If you're passionate about telling immigrant stories, our team is looking for help. If you're willing to help with podcast production, social media, or Patreon management, please reach out to us. You can also donate on our Patreon if it's easier for you. All the links are in the description below. Thank you.